Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Faith at the forefront of today's events. From a Catholic cultural perspective, it's in the arena with your host, Monsignor Kieran Harrington. Hi, and welcome to In the Arena. I'm Father Duffy, obviously not Monsignor Harrington. He's out of the country, but because of technology, he will join us at the end of the show today. We'll be joined uh, later by uh, singer-songwriter Don Arbor, a New York Times reporter, uh, and author John Leland, who has written a book called Happiness is a Choice You Make. But first, we have Joe Concha here with us. Awesome to have him here from uh, The Hill. Uh, Joe, what's going on? A lot's going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I, I cover media for mm-hmm. The Hill. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a reporter. I'm also a columnist. Cool. And there aren't enough hours in a day right. to cover everything that happens. The news cycles happen so fast. Remember the memos, right. the Nunez memo, yeah, the yeah. Democratic memo, the Grassley-Graham memo. How often do you have to rewrite That's articles? Gone. Oh, rewrite them? No, I just move on to the next topic. <laughs> the next one. every half hour, There's something new Something new breaks, yeah. right? Oh, my God. Hope Hicks, the White House communications director, resigned. Yep. Is that really a big deal? Because five have already. <laughs> They've been treating it like it's awake, though. Uh, kinda, yeah. I mean, look, uh, the shelf life in this administration is very, very short, right? <laughs> Steve Bannon, chief mm-hmm. White House uh, strategist, gone. Uh, chief of Staff Priebus, gone. White House press secretary Spicer, gone. White House uh, communications director, four of them, gone. Yeah. You could go through the list. It's. I think this is just the way it works. That this is so exhausting to to the point of news moving mm-hmm. around so fast that after a year you probably just burn out. So I think all that matters though, as long as the guy with the letter uh, T in his last name mm-hmm. is sitting in the Oval Office. Everybody else around him, I'd say outside of John Kelly and maybe Mattis and maybe Haley at the U.N., Yeah, I don't know if it matters. Yeah, we yeah. just keep moving on. You know, we've had a lot going on these last uh, two weeks. Uh, Ash Wednesday, in fact, we saw a terrible tragedy. Yeah. Uh, I think the fact that it happened on Ash Wednesday is, is significant spiritually for me. Um, and Valentine's Day symbolically for, for those who... I guess if that means... I'm a priest. I, I don't celebrate Valentine's Day. You, really? <laughs> It's day of we love. Call, we call it the most depressing day of the year in the seminary. Oh, yeah, good point. I guess you flowers <laughs> together. I never considered that. Sorry. My mother always sends me chocolates, though. But this year it was on Ash Wednesday. I couldn't eat them. Oh, because you gave up chocolate. No, because it's Ash Wednesday. You don't eat, it. You don't eat chocolate on Ash Wednesday. I thought it was you don't eat meat on Ash Wednesday. Well, that too. Is there anything left? I'm a little strict, I guess. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Can you have chicken or something? Can you have like- No, what? no meat. Chicken's meat? On Ash Wednesday. Chicken is meat. I guess you could consider that meat. Alligator is not meat. It's not. It's not. Apparently, it's it's of the fish family. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah, oh, I didn't realize that. So yeah. I, while we're thinking of, of all these things, yeah, while we're thinking of all these things, uh, Lent is underway. Uh, the president's got a lot of news. Um, I've been talking a lot in my parish school about what happened in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, because it, it's affecting them. It's affecting the students. And it's affecting the national conversation. What what are you uh, thinking? What are you hearing? going on with uh, uh, the shooting and politics. I think a lot of people have a lot of ideas. And, you know, look, there's been 25 mass shootings in elementary and high schools since Columbine. That was in 1999. And for whatever reason, under this particular shooting, things have changed. And I think that's primarily because of the children that were 
there as survivors Mm -hmm. now have a megaphone through social media. Yeah. And they're using it mm-hmm. in, in a big way. Uh, one of the students, uh, David Hogg, he's, he's a journalist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has been on everywhere from CBS to NBC to CNN to MSNBC on a daily basis talking about why we need to do X, Y, Z. And you may disagree or agree with them, but it's hard to yeah. attack a 17-year-old yeah. kid who just survived a shooting. Yeah. And I think that's why things are moving yeah. forward. And uh, President Trump isn't your typical Republican where he's beholden to the NRA and just giving the talking points of a good guy can stop a, a bad guy with a gun. He's actually proposing things that are making the NRA very angry. How much of that was a performance and how much of that is actual legitimate? He wants to get this done. And do you think he's going to be able to? I always think that Donald Trump wasn't the biggest staunch conservative Republican. He was once yeah. a Democrat. Yeah. So I, I, I see him more as a New Yorker, mm-hmm. which probably means you have a liberal side, particularly on social issues. Yeah. So I don't think it's a performance thing at all. I think he sees an opportunity to get things done. He sees himself as a negotiator. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. therefore, I agree with taking uh, guns away from uh, anybody that's under 21 that you, you can't get one until a certain age. That makes sense to me because you look at these uh, school shootings, almost all were carried out by students or former students mm-hmm. under 21 years old. Mm-hmm. They don't need to be buying a rifle. Mm-hmm. And then I always see the counter argument. Well, if you serve in the military, you're 18. So why should you have to wait till you're 21? Because in the military, you're trained. <laughs> you know what to do with a gun. Yeah, that, that's a lot you, different. So you know, it's, it's interesting that I think uh, some people were surprised to hear the president's comments uh, in the Oval Office and, and in other places because he gets so much money from the NRA. You know, what, what, you know, does he take it and, and, and work against them, fight them? You know, he said, in, he said in a meeting the other day, you're scared of the NRA. Yeah. You know, well, he takes money, too. So, you know, he did, he's not dependent on it, though. That's different. that's the thing. Right. Uh, he spent, I think, less than half of what Hillary Clinton did. Right. His thing was a social media thing, which is free. Yeah. It's grassroots. It was his rallies. It was all the pre- free media that he got. He's not dependent on the NRA because I need this money so I could buy this ad. Do, Ads are almost irrelevant. Do, at this point. Does he risk losing his base? Or some parts of it? I don't know. Does he not care? I don't think he cares. Yeah. I don't think he cares. <laughs> I think he sees an opportunity to get things done where he's like, okay, I could say I cut taxes. I blew ISIS into oblivion. The caliphate, like 98% yeah. of it is gone since he took office. So if I could you know, make the economy better and put more money back in people's pockets, like things that people really feel, and I could actually get things done on school shootings or guns in general, he'll see that as a victory. And I don't think he cares who his is, supporters are. Is he thinking legacy here? Oh, no. I think he likes being liked. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest and this with is you. popular. Gun control is popular right now. It's huge. Yeah. Right? I mean, almost everybody supports, like, stronger background mm-hmm. checks, mm-hmm. right? Most, a strong majority don't think that people should be owning, uh, and I always use the, the term wrong, and then at NRI people mm-hmm. yell at me, military-grade weapons, whatever they may be. Yeah. Whatever you don't need to take out a deer, mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. the way to go. I think people in the military that have proper training should have guns like that. Otherwise, an 18-year-old kid should not be able to walk into a school and start blowing away his classmates. You know, he, he seems to have made promises before, uh, obviously. You know, I'm thinking of the, of the immigration thing back in January. He made promises to back a bipartisan deal, and, and it's sort of fallen apart. Um, is there the concern? right part, bipartisan deal. They, well, right there you go, yeah. yeah. Is that going to happen again, you think? Or was, does he... Well, on that bipartisan deal, the one that was presented to him, yeah. said, oh, by the way, you're not getting your wall. Yeah. Like he wanted to use that as a negotiating tool. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you take advantage of it and say, okay, uh, we'll, we'll go with what you're offering, but you can't have something in return. Right. So I, I get why he did that. Uh, in this case, yeah, I think some things will get done. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that the, probably the minimum wage age will be raised to 21. Yeah. I think you got to harden these schools. I, I don't know how things are mm-hmm. uh, at your educational facility. Sure. There should be one entrance point, 
one yeah. exit point, and then police shouldn't be sitting around in a parking lot or doing administrative work at a police station. They should be doing it at schools. Yeah. An office should be established right at the entrance yep. for every police officer, and that's when you go when you're not driving around in your car. You that know, makes sense to me, and it's free. Ish. Ish. <laughs> you know, I, I run a Catholic school. I have 270 students in my school. I'm meeting with the chief of police next week. Uh, it's expensive to put in extra cameras. It's expensive to, to put in a guard, uh, pay a guard. And it's expensive, and I'm not even sure how I feel. Uh, in fact, I know how I feel about arming teachers. Yeah. He, he, he's been harping on this, um, and a lot of people coming out against it. But then I just saw somewhere that, that they want to train uh, some teachers, and hundreds of people showed up for the training. Right. Um, is this going to happen? It's happening already. It is. Uh, it happened in Kentucky and in uh, Florida. Uh, in in two school districts, you saw that, yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's going to happen probably more on a grassroots level than a yeah. federal type of yeah. thing. Because there's money involved. This it's it's policy. It's it's where where are they going to get the the backing for that financially? Sure. But it just for what? Here's what I say. I mean, Department of Defense just got this huge budget approved, mm-hmm. right? I, and I'm I'm just a dumb guy, yeah. right? <laughs> who just watches stuff from home, and I don't know how this policy stuff really works. Why can't we take some of the billions that were Put towards defense, yeah. right? Towards tanks and planes and everything, and put it towards a school like yours, yeah. right? And just just for hiring one security guard and putting in one metal detector and just making sure there's only one entrance point and one exit point. You know, one that the, would that would cut down these things ninety five percent. I'm convinced. One of the ideas that, that I've been seeing that I actually like, and I think we're going to look at it in my school, is hiring a retired uh, a veteran or hiring a retired police officer. Sure. They don't need the benefits because they're getting them. You could you could give them more money because you're not paying for their benefits. Good point. Um, and and having them sit there, one, they're they're a good example for the students, and two, they're trained, they know how to protect. Right, it's all know? built in, right? Yeah. It's kind of like a crossing guard. Yeah, exactly. Do you pay crossing guards? I don't even know. Or is that a volunteer thing? That's uh, through the uh, at least on Long Island, it's through the the local police departments. Okay, the, a yeah. voice from above told me that they're paid. <laughs> right, but what minimum wage? I mean, yeah. in other words, I, I think there's enough. Uh, it, uh, if this is a priority, then we we have all this money that jo- we put towards thing. I don't think. Joe, you have young kids, right? I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, Cameron and Liam. So, yeah. so they're real young. How do you feel as a parent with the possibility of sending them to a classroom with you know, that has a gun in it? Boy, that's a great question. If the person is trained in it, mm-hmm. and I know that that thing is it cannot be Cured accessed and, in any way, yeah. shape, or form, then I have no problem with it. You don't. So I think it's. A, I drop them off to daycare almost every day at the, yeah. the Wyckoff, New Jersey Y, and I can't help but think about Sandy Hook almost every time I walk in. Yeah. I can't think of a monster that would look at these do kids that. and say, I, I have to do that. But then I've heard from uh, one teacher that was there who said, I felt helpless, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, like I just had to cower. And if, Nothing to do. Give him something to fight back with. But we have to be absolutely sure. It's not every teacher is going to get one. They're not going to want it, too. Or not going to want it. But the ones that want to do it and the ones that have had training or go through the proper training, mm-hmm. I don't see really, uh, I think the pros outweigh the cons. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. But it's just a shame that we're even talking about Joe, Senator Rubio uh, has been getting a lot of pressure uh, on this issue, taking the money from the NRA. Yeah. Uh, that town hall was was powerful. Um, uh, I hated he, he, it. Uh, yeah, I, well, yeah. He's he's blaming a little bit of the media uh, for some of this stuff. How much is it, of this is a creation uh, of the media? And, and I think Question. you mentioned before about uh, Hogg and some of these other students who I think are very impressive. How much of their platform is being provided to them by the mainstream media? Oh, all of it, right? Yeah. It's not not is, just is it agenda media. driven? I mean, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, if you're a kid uh, that wanted to talk about how we have to arm teachers, they don't yeah. seem to get on the air as yeah. much, right? 
the CNN town hall, I, I like the idea of it in that they got different voices in the room. They got mm-hmm. the NRA spokeswoman and Dana Loesch. They got Rubio to yeah. come. Good they for got, him. Obviously, for up. Yeah, that was brave, right? Uh, wrong context of brave, but yeah, brave yeah, yeah. politically. Uh, then you had the Democratic senator that was there as well. And But the problem was you had that conversation like we're having a conversation. And maybe you put 50 or 60 people in a room like a presidential debate, yeah. right? You don't turn it into the Coliseum which it was yeah. thousands of people understandably upset that were just there to boo somebody to yeah. lash out in some the way. The emotions were high. They were high. And that, that felt contri- not the emotions weren't contrived, the arena and the atmosphere that was completely counterproductive in my mind, yeah, artificial right? Because it became an us versus them thing instead of actually uh, yeah. discussing ideas, but, but they, they, they gave it a shot and they put it together in a week. So I'm not going to go off on CNN too much yeah. uh, just in the future. I would do that in a more confined setting. You know, we, we've been seeing the last day or two uh, a lot of corporations coming out with statements, uh, Dick's and Walmart. Um, Kroger. Kroger, Today, yeah. yeah. I, th- that's huge. I mean, they're, they're taking a risk. They're, they're going to lose part of their, their sales. Um, is, that, is that heroic? Is that something that, that we should be applauding? Should we go be? Should we all be out shopping at, at Dick's and Kroger and Walmart? And, uh, yeah. It depends on what you're, you're uh, yeah. like, in other words, if I, I think that you can't buy a gun until after you're 21, sure, I'd, I'd, I'd support them. I wouldn't go out of my way. Yeah. I, to be honest with you, I don't step foot in a store anymore. Yeah. Amazon, baby, right. everything, yeah. right? Uh, but to that end, it's this is how the snowball effect works. Yeah. That when Dick's did it, mm-hmm. and then that CEO's on CNN, yeah. right, and he's getting all this praise, and Walmart says, well, should do that too. Yeah. So, is it? Are they doing it from some sort of moral place, or is it good PR and marketing? And if you look at the yeah. polls, and most people support that particular measure, is it going to make what? a difference? The PR market, yes, it will. Yeah. Because now it's going to it's going to go to the next store and the next store. And, and the fact that it's grassroots, it's coming it's from the bottom. Roots. You know, nobody's forcing them to do it. There's a lot of momentum around this, right? Mm-hmm. And the NRA doesn't seem to have too many answers in this case. They, mm-hmm. the Dana Loesch was on uh, Fox Today. She's the NRA spokesperson. And I, I think she means well in terms of making her arguments. But one of them was, you know, this is who you hurt when you raise the minimum age to 21. You mm-hmm. hurt the 19-year-old deer hunter. Yeah. Really? Right. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I, I'm willing to for, forgive uh, the 19-year-old deer hunter for being uh, hurt because they don't have a rifle to shoot down a deer. After rate. the horror of what we saw, you know, um, I'm, I'm okay with that. Oh, yeah. And we need to, you know, I, I'm not a fan of attacking prayers and thoughts, um, but I get where people are coming from that it's not enough. Um, but we got to do something. something, and, and, and something seems to be happening. I, I think it is. I think yeah. we're finally going in the right direction. The trick is it, yeah. it happens and it kind of peters out. But in this mm-hmm. case, we're now more than two weeks mm-hmm. past, and it's still mm-hmm. the number one topic by far in every news cycle. And, and, and that's a good thing because uh, in this country, in this day and age, this sort of thing should not happen. Yeah. Joe, great conversation. That was a pretty good conversation. I can't believe you're 14 years younger than me. That really makes me angry. Is it? Is it the, the facial hair? It's the is beard. That... It's an artificial aging, uh, and that, and that you know works po- perfectly with the, the next segment uh, coming up uh, next. Uh, John Leland on uh, aging well and old age and happiness and how to do it. That is called a seamless segue. You just. Did. I'm pretty good. You are. They good. should have me back. Oh, it's not my show. Uh, it's not mine either. Talk to the producers. Please stay with us. We gotta go. Dear Calvary Hospital, James Lee was a true hero. Saving lives was something he always wanted to do. Whether as a paratrooper for the 82nd Airborne or as a New York City fireman, they called him Jimmy. I was proud to call him Dad. But when terminal illness ravaged his body, this man's man knew that this was one life that could not be saved. Not even by me, an experienced nurse. It just wasn't fair that he had to suffer like this. But then Calvary stepped in. You relieved his enormous pain, 
and not only gave him the peace and comfort he deserved, but you also gave me and my family a chance to enjoy his final days, smiling and laughing, together one last time. How can we ever forget what you mean to us? Yours truly, Colleen Lee. This is Frank Calamari, president of Calvary Hospital, where life continues. Call us at 718-518-2000. Thank you. As the pieces of the financial, investing, and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report. Or go to Jannie.com, Jannie Montgomery Scott, LLC. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington on 710 WOR. Welcome back to In the Arena. We're joined now uh, by New York Times reporter John Leland. John wrote a a year-long series for the New York Times about old age. He profiled six New Yorkers over the age of 85. His new book is about that series and about his relationship with his mother, who is now 89 years old. It's called Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a a Year Along the Oldest Old. John, welcome uh, to In the Arena. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Uh, we're also joined uh, again by uh, Joe Concha. Um, a gift to have you both here. Uh, John, tell us a little bit about this book. What was the, the impetus to write it? Well, I spent a year, as, I, as you mentioned, uh, writing about six people for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the year, I was having a little bit of separation anxiety. I missed these people. They'd meant so much to me. And I tried to figure out what it was that had meant so much to me and why I missed them so much. And I realized that I'd learned a lot about how to live my life from theirs. You know, these were not extraordinary 92-year-olds who jump out of airplanes. They were regular New Yorkers from different walks of life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and yet they all managed to, and they all had their hardships, and they managed to get up in the morning and face their day. And, and I, I realized that I was just getting so much out of them, and it was bringing me so much joy that I wanted to make sense of that and see if I could share some of that with readers. What was it that you got out of them? You know, what was it that, that they were doing that was different than, than us young folks? <laughs> they were resilient. They didn't take their hardships personally because they knew hardships were going to come their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they practiced gratitude in a meaningful way. Uh, they had a sense of purpose. They knew what they wanted out of each day. Do they fear death? Because I know I'm going to when I hit a certain age because I'm not going to handle that well. I got to be I know I know afterlife and it, it's it's going to be fun up there, I'm sure, but we hope. I yeah, we hope, right? <laughs> but I I imagine is that something that weighs on their mind or do they just kind of push it aside from what you learned? It's a great question and they asked it and asked it again and asked it again over the course of the year. And they almost all feared dying. They didn't like the idea that they'd have a painful death mm-hmm. or a long drawn out death, but they weren't so scared of the end. And only one said he was, and I asked him why. And it was a really, it was such a moving moment. He, he said, because I don't know. And he broke down in tears. And it was, it was really moving. Do, do any of them have any sort of health problems where a death may be like a cancer or just some sort of problem where it may be more uh, imminent than, than 
or they're just completely healthy? Well, all six of them survived the year, but two of them died the following year, okay, and they were really? close to it. And one of it, every one of them, a man, every time I went to see him, he said he wanted to die. Mm. And it was so interesting. And I would say he was a guy who loved to talk, and so talking would always make him happy, even talking about wanting to die. And so I'd say, John, you know, do you wish you died yesterday? And he'd say, no, because we're talking. Mm. And I'd say, do you want to die tonight? And he'd say, well, no, because Anne's coming over tomorrow. And so he... Who was Anne? Anne was his uh, partner's niece. Okay, gotcha. Who took care of him. John, what was the role of faith in, in, in their journey towards the end there? It's very different for all of them. They were divided across different faiths, and, and some had sort of lost faith over, mm-hmm. the, over time, and, and one was, had, was like a Buddhist and a Christian and, and probably everything else thrown yeah. in. So it, it, it figured in different ways. I think it helped them organize mm-hmm. their thoughts. The most religious of them, it helped them organize their thoughts about their life and their death and, and the idea of gratitude. Mm. I think was came more easily to the people that had faith. Was was there uh, a correlation between their comfort level as they got to the end uh, and as they aged, in fact, and, and their faith practice? Uh, that's a great question. I don't think there was. I, th- okay. I think they were, as I said, scattered all over the lot. Yeah. Death became so big, and it di- wasn't an abstraction anymore. Mm-hmm. Were you inspired to write the book because uh, at the time you were fifty-five, right, and you and you just had gone through a divorce, and your mother's eighty-six, and you're taking care of her? Was being with her more something that inspired you to say, hey, I want to speak to other folks her age just to see what their mindset is at that age? Yeah, I learned so much. I was always comparing my own mother with the people in the group because my mother is having a, a difficult old age, and she often says that she would like to die too. Oh, my. And, and so I started to understand because when I see my mother, I'm always trying to help her with her problems. And so I see mom as this project. When I saw these other people, I didn't have to help them with their, proje- their problems. I was just taking... The, the wisdom and the knowledge that they were giving me and seeing the value in that. And once I started doing that, I could see that from my mother, too, and see the wisdom I got from her. So she went from being a project to being a lunch date. Hmm. Did, did your dad pass away a while back or recently? He or? did. My father died in 2004. 2004. Did she, her mindset change after that? Because so many times, my, my wife's an ER doctor, and she has seen where a spouse dies and then uh, the survivor, you know, comes in for some sort of illness and they just resign themselves to the fact, like, yeah, I don't really want to be around anymore. I'd rather be with my husband or with my wife. I think she felt lonely after my father died, but I think she was resilient in that sense. But she's always had chronic back pain. And as that got worse, you know, that made her really... uh, That's something that that jumps out at me, that uh, as the folks that you talked to uh, and interviewed and spent time with, as they were aging and, and had some physical uh, ailments, some, some difficulties, they still had a sense of gratitude. They still had a sense of joy and even happiness. How closely connected is that sense of joy um, and peace uh, connected? I think that you mentioned gratitude here, and yeah. I think that's a big thing. I, underst- I learned that gratitude was different from what I thought it was. I always okay. thought gratitude is you're happy that someone gives you that piece of cake or, mm-hmm. or, or something. And there was a man named Fred Jones taught me that gratitude was being grateful for everything all the time, mm-hmm. seeing the world as a benign place, the way it is in the Psalms, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the gratitude Psalms are not about the favors that God gives us. They're about God being God, and we're thankful for, and we're grateful for that. Yeah. And so I think Fred saw the world that way, and, that's, and he was in a lot of pain. He was, he was losing two toes to gangrene, and he lived in a walk-up apartment. And I, you'd ask Fred, what's your favorite part of the day? He'd say, waking up in the morning and saying, thank God for another day. Wow. When, when you attended the funerals of, of the two uh, that, that passed away, uh, 
were you do people know who you were in terms of because that's very rare that you have somebody chronicling your life outside of just an obituary that the family writes up. They're actually getting the print time from a major New York Times reporter. One was really separated from his family. He was close to one of his daughters, and she died a week before he did. And there was wow. the social worker said he died of a broken heart, and I think that was true. The other one, uh, we're waiting to scatter his remains. Oh, really? Yeah, so there'll be a memorial this summer. Where does that happen? Like a Yankee Stadium, Atlantic Ocean? Because uh, that, that's my plan, Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field? <laughs> yeah, just put, 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 put all over there, and then that'll be that. And it's windy, so I'll, I'll probably end up somewhere You'll in St. Louis. hot dogs. That's yeah, yeah, probably. He loved Fire Island, and he will return to Fire Island. Fire Island, really? Yeah. Very nice. No cars on Fire Island, I don't think, right? No, no. Yeah, just bikes. Never been, but I've heard it's, it's a lot of fun. Quite, quite a place to go. Yeah, we actually have a parish on Fire Island. Uh, that we, I go over and say mass every so often. It's 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 a, it's quite a nice place, and uh, God bless him. I can tell why he why he would love it. John, how did this um, sense of uh, spending time with, with these folks uh, change your idea of age? Oh, I'm not afraid of it anymore. I, you know, I I read this definition recently that despair is not being able to imagine a desirable, plausible future for yourself, mm-hmm. or a plausible, desirable future. And being afraid of old age means that you. Can't look at that as being desirable. Right. And then not being afraid of old age, seeing that we can have full, fulfilling, and often joyful lives, even with some of the losses of old age, just makes me much more optimistic about the future, and that makes me enjoy today more. John, the, there's an infrastructure around uh, the elderly and the aged uh, that, that's growing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe how we as a community can, can assist them um, a little deeper? To a great extent, New York is a wonderful place to get old because yeah. you don't need a car. <laughs> and you can order in food. You can have people come to, people can come to see you fairly easily. Yeah. They don't need mass transit, and you can go out. Mm-hmm. So then again, you have to walk places too, right? So there is a downside. No, As you said, walk-ups, yeah. right? I mean, the, the one apartment, is that like a third floor or fourth floor walk-up? Because when I was 23 and lived in one of those, I got tired going up those stairs. He was in a third floor walk-up, and it was a, I walked upstairs with him, and it was a big project for him. And he was very courageous, and he did it. But it, but it was difficult. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. John, what's the takeaway from the book? What do you want people to take away from reading it and, and, and having uh, experienced these, these folks with you? The, the, the title of the book is Happiness is a Choice You Make. And the idea of that is that happiness doesn't come from outside circumstances. Yeah. It comes from within you. And these people were capable of happiness when they were experiencing the loss that none of us wants to experience in life. They'd lost their spouses, they'd lost some of their mobility, eyesight, hearing, but they were still able to choose this. And if, uh, gosh, the takeaway is if they can do it, we can, all, we can all do it. I'm inspired, I know that. I turned 47 last week. I'm only 33. You're 33 years old? Yeah, I'm a young guy. Wow, good for you. I feel like I'm aging, though. It's Put you guys together, you're 80, so there you yeah, go. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent point and, and, and a great way to, to, to end this interview. But yeah. uh, hey, I pr- I'm definitely reading this because age just completely, I, I fear it so much, and I don't quite know why. I think I'm going to lose things along the way, but mm-hmm. then again, it seems like here that you could gain a lot of things too, and that's life experience and r- realizing that you could teach yourself something new every day. If you're not afraid, 41 will be better and 42 will be better. Okay. It's a long run of good years. You know, I, I think the idea that happiness is that choice. Um, John, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. Happiness is a choice you make. Lessons from a year among the oldest old by John Leland. John, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks a lot.
God bless. St. Sebastian is a thriving parish. The chapel is open for adoration with benediction weekdays from 7.30 until 6.45 and Sundays from 8 to 5. There are also weeknight masses every day at 7 p.m. with a Spanish service on Thursdays, in addition to the regular Sunday mass schedule, which offers eight opportunities for worship, including a 10.30 a.m. mass with ASL interpreter and a noon mass in Spanish. Come out and join us at 3963 57th Street in Woods New York and Butchies of Brooklyn, Italian kitchen and legendary desserts. We offer everything, a cafe, a bakery, a restaurant, and full bar. Our kitchen offers old world Italian recipes handed down from generation to generation, specializing in Italian American cuisine. Let us host your next affair in our home, or we can cater to you in your home. Located in Staten Island at 4864 Arthur Kill Road, and you can call us at 718-227-0002. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. As the pieces of the financial investing and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report or go to Jannie.com. Jannie Montgomery Scott, LLC. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington. Call in at 347-921-4NET. 347-921-4NET. Let me be the first to welcome you. It must have been so hard to leave your homeland. I can't begin to understand. That was a clip from the new song, Everyone Comes From Somewhere, by Don Arbor. The song's a welcome to immigrants, and now we get to welcome you, Don, to In the Arena. Don, tell us, why'd you write that song? Well, there's a lot of history that goes into it. I am the grandson of immigrants. I was particularly inspired growing up in New Jersey by the story of my grandmother, Goldie, who came to the U.S. when she was 15 years old in the hold of a steamship spoke no English, settled in lower Manhattan, made her way in the world. And if she hadn't had the courage to do that, and if our doors hadn't been open to immigrants, I wouldn't be here talking with you and I wouldn't have had all the wonderful opportunities that I've had myself. So uh, when I was, when my mother was in her declining years, I was speaking with her caregiver who was an immigrant herself. She was talking about the animosity that she felt sometimes from people who believe that immigrants shouldn't have a fair chance to to be United States citizens. And uh, I just said, everyone comes from somewhere. And she said, that's, a, that's true. Why don't you write a song about that? And so putting those things together between that spark of the conversation with her and uh, my own history, that's where the song comes from. 
Hey, Don, can you describe the video uh, a little bit? I'm, you know, I'm looking at it now, and it that's one big coffee house. I mean, the one in my town, it could fit, you know, barely a shoehorn in it, but that that looks like an impressive place. The Freight and Salvage actually just celebrated, I think it's uh, 45th anniversary. It started in a little shoebox about two miles from its current location. Then it moved to a larger place. And about five years ago, they opened in a 450-seat theater in the center of Berkeley. And it's really become a showplace for some of the best performing artists in the world, not just in the U.S. It's a great, great institution. Everybody should check this out on YouTube, uh, which you can. It's like a seven-piece band, a a huge stage. Uh, Impressive. You you almost have a Larry David thing going on, Don, but you have a little more hair than he does. (laughs) (laughs) So far. (laughs) That's a good thing. Don, it's gotten quite a reception. Tell us about that that positive reception. Were Were you surprised by that? I would say more gratified than surprised. Yeah. I, I knew while I was writing it that it was something that would resonate with a lot of people, but it's had several thousand views in only the short time it's been up on YouTube. And very few of the comments have been of the kind that would you say are negative. Mostly it's all very supportive and people are getting the message on a level where the policy debates don't necessarily reach. You know, it's it's important that you say that, you know, you, you approach this from a personal perspective, from, from that personal history. Um, it does right. have a little bit of a, of a political side to this, too, uh, as a part of, of the, the national dialogue. What do you think about that? I I wrote it more as a personal statement, but obviously I'm aware that immigration has political overtones mm-hmm. and that there are debates in the country. My goal was more to speak from the human side about uh, what we have in common. Even the, even the title, Everyone Comes From Somewhere, is more about what we have in common than what divides us. And the, the political side of it, I think, is unfortunate that we have so much division uh, and it, whatever I can do to address that and try to get people to be more empathic, more our common humanity than what divides us. That's my goal. It is amazing, Don, that just a couple of years ago, immigration was seventh, eighth on the list sure. as far as what people talked about, what politicians talked about. And now, obviously, under, under President Trump, this is a, a dominant conversation, particularly uh, with DACA, uh, it, it could expire. We'll see. But you, you look mm-hmm. at a CNN poll that, that came out recently, uh, 83% favor continuing DACA. And that includes 67, two-thirds of Republicans, 83% of independents, obviously, but 94% of Democrats. Uh, obviously, I, I don't have to ask where you stand on DACA. You're probably with everybody else. You're probably with me that says, you know what, they they, they came here when they were when they were kids, when they had no control really over their destiny, and they, they should be able to stay if if they're going to contribute to the country and, and make it make America great again, for lack of a better term. I agree with that. You know, we just had a uh, um, a big protest in the Capitol. I think it was yesterday, or the day before, where uh, I think a couple dozen nuns were arrested, a couple of priests were arrested because uh, they were protesting uh, this uh, DACA, uh, wanting it to continue. Um, and I think having uh, songs like this, a video like this, showing uh, the human side of this uh, this reality that that this is something that affects everyone because we're all human beings. We all come from somewhere. Exactly. And there is a long tradition, a Judeo-Christian tradition of welcoming the stranger. Sure. The, nuns may, the nuns may have been operating from that perspective. Exactly. For example, there's, there's a book called Christians at the Border that I was reading recently uh, by a Dennis Carroll, who's a seminarian out in Colorado with a, one parent who's Guatemalan and the other is American born. And I think he goes into great detail about the benefits of welcoming the stranger from a spiritual side. And I'm sure the nuns are aware of that. Oh, yeah. for sure. You know, and, and I know for in fact, there's a couple of priests that are actually uh, uh, dreamers themselves. 
uh, that, that came here uh, by their parents when they were little, and they eventually were ordained Catholic priests. You know, the church is at the forefront of, of this conversation, I think. If I could just talk about that for a minute. Uh, I've looked into who the dreamers are and what you're saying is is true. I think there's an un- one of the other unfortunate things that's happening is conflating the dreamers with the gangs like MS-13, which are right. such a small, small but very dangerous percentage of all immigrants. And uh, the uh, the fact of it is that thousands of dreamers are, they all have to meet background criteria of either being in school or having a diploma or even being in the military. Here in California, we have a large percentage, about, about a quarter of all the, the dreamers are in California and over 5,000 of them are teachers in our schools. Mm-hmm. So uh, the idea of getting rid of those teachers when we already have a shortage seems wrongheaded to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading about this now, uh, and I'm, I report on media, so you think I would have seen this, but it, it didn't really get too many headlines. But according to the Catholic News Agency, mm-hmm. uh, 100 people, including friars, religious sisters, nuns, uh, were led away in flex cuffs, a planned <laughs> act of civil disobedience. Yeah. They, right? they, they were praying, they were singing, um, peaceful protests. I think it was in, in the Russell Senate building, maybe. That's right. Um, and they were carted away. Carted away, did literally, they, literally charged with crimes and carted away. Did any call you for bail, Father Duffy? I, I'm a poor parish priest. I don't have any money for bail. <laughs> Maybe we'll call John. Well, it's ironic that taking the shackles off of ICE has put the shackles on the religious followers of DACA. Isn't that incredible? John, you, you, your personal background, you're a lawyer, right? I am a lawyer. Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey and uh, moved to California to go to law school quite, quite a number of years ago. How'd you go from so lawyer to, to musician? Well, actually, I played music long before I went to law school, and I've been playing since my childhood. Both my parents were wonderful singers, and I grew up with music in the house all the mm. time. So it's a big part of my life, and uh, I like to tell people I was a person before I was a lawyer, and <laughs> <laughs> and I was also a musician before I was a lawyer. Wow, that's that's so smart. Not so much that you uh, got into music and you could practice law, but the fact that you left New Jersey and went to California. I'm from Jersey. What what part are you from? Well, I grew up in Roselle and Cranford. In fact, my grandmother, Goldie, that I was talking about earlier, who came over in the steamship, when she moved from Manhattan, she had a small farm in Roselle that later became the suburb where I spent my uh, first 16 years of life. And I moved next door to Cranford. So about 20 miles from Manhattan. Where are you from, Joe? I I am from Wayne, New Jersey, but we'll do this the Jersey way. Okay. I don't even have to look it up. Roselle is exit 137 off the parkway. That's right. Yeah. That's I'm 153B. I got my driver's license in Wayne. I got my. I went to Wayne for my driver's license. Yeah, the DMV. That was right behind my house in the woods and everything. <laughs> it's, a, it's a true story. So, uh, well, congratulations on the better weather because uh, yeah. we don't get that here. But Not we today. love Jersey. We love Jersey. Oh, that's my dog. He loves Jersey, too, apparently. <laughs> John, where could uh, uh, folks hear the song and see the video? Well, uh, if you go to DonArbor.com, you can see uh, the video as well as uh, a number of other videos and hear a number of my songs. Or you can go to YouTube, Don Arbor, and you can even go to the Facebook page. That's all right. No worries. DonArbor.com. We should get Three Dog Night on as well. <laughs> uh, Don, my grandmother, my great-grandmother was Goldie, too. All right. My great-grandmother was Goldie as well. That's funny. That's not that common a name anymore. From Where were they from? Goldie was from Eastern Europe. Yeah, so Russia. was mine, yeah. We, we were from uh, Czechoslovakia. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. And where's your parish? Uh, I'm a priest uh, out, out on Long Island, Our Lady of Lords in Mel, uh, Malvern. Okay. Yeah. I got any immigrant roots? Um, 
I, my family's been here so many generations uh, that we we we've lost touch. Uh, lost track. Yeah, we, we're just you know we've been here, you know, a couple of generations. That we're not sure where we're even from okay. beyond that. So you come, so you come from Long Island. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice talking with you. Thanks. Nice talking to you, Don. Thanks for joining us this morning. Up next, Monsignor Harrington returns to close the show, even though he's out of the country, with his guest, Trent Horn. St. Sebastian is a thriving parish. The chapel is open for adoration with benediction weekdays from 7.30 until 6.45 and Sundays from 8 to 5. There are also weeknight masses every day at 7 p.m. with a Spanish service on Thursdays, in addition to the regular Sunday mass schedule, which offers eight opportunities for worship, including a 10.30 a.m. mass with ASL interpreter and an noon mass in Spanish. Come out and join us at 3963 57th Street in Woodside, New York. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. As the pieces of the financial investing and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report. Or go to Janie.com. Janie Montgomery Scott, LLC. Liquid Dreams Design, outstanding for all your printing needs, especially same-day service, including banners, signs, posters, graphics, custom wall coverings, and step-and-repeat backdrops. Call 718-627-8599 and mention to Sales Media Now to get 10% off. Or visit their website at liquiddreamsdesign.com. The FBI reports there is a burglary in the U.S. every 15 seconds. If you're not alarmed, you should be. At Alarms R Us, we keep your loved ones safe with our burglar and fire alarm systems and 24-hour central station monitoring. Call Alarms R Us toll-free at 866-996-6900 to schedule your free security consultation. Again, that number is 866-996-6900. It's always better to be safe than sorry. So call Alarms R Us now to protect your home and family. Dear Calvary Hospital, James Lee was a true hero. Saving lives was something he always wanted to do. Whether as a paratrooper for the 82nd Airborne or as a New York City fireman, they called him Jimmy. I was proud to call him Dad. But when terminal illness ravaged his body, this man's man knew that this was one life that could not be saved. Not even by me, an experienced nurse. It just wasn't fair that he had to suffer like this. But then Calvary stepped in. You relieved his enormous pain and not only gave him the peace and comfort he deserved, but you also gave me and my family a chance to enjoy his final days, smiling and laughing, together one last time. How can we ever forget what you mean to us? Yours truly, Colleen Lee. This is Frank Calamari, president of Calvary Hospital, where life continues. Call us at 718-518-2000. Thank you. 
In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington on 710 WOR. Hey gang, welcome back to In the Arena. My name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington. Again, through the miracle of modern television, uh, I'm broadcasting to you from some far off place in the world, even though it looks like my living room in Brooklyn, New York. So we're very grateful to have with us today Trent Horn. He's the author of The Case for Catholicism, Answers to Classic and Contemporary Protestant Objections. Thanks, Trent, for being with us. Thank you for having me, Minister. Trent, you have a very appropriate name because I think about the Council of Trent when I'm thinking about your book. <laughs> well, that's funny, actually, because uh, my my family actually isn't Catholic, so it's a uh, an act of divine providence. See, uh, now that, that says I, to me how you Trent. were able to know what these objections to Catholicism were, because you weren't born Catholic. That's correct. I had to answer them for myself uh, when I was received into the church in high school, and that research uh, over the past 15 years has culminated in this work, which I think will be helpful for a lot of people. So, so tell us a little bit about that journey. How did you enter the church? Well, uh, when I was in high school, I was befriended by a group of Catholic teens, uh, people in my classes, and I started going to their lunchtime meetings. Uh, I found it very intriguing, and so over the course of a year, I did research, read on the internet, everything I could, and uh, during where, my where did you year up? of high school, I was baptized, confirmed, first Eucharist, received into the church. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, that's where I currently reside my family, though we're looking to relocate back to San Diego, where Catholic Answers is currently headquartered. Okay, so now, what was your faith life like before coming into the church? I, you know, I believe there was a God somewhere out there, uh, but I wasn't, I was essentially a non-religious person. Okay. And through their interactions, I came to see the truth of Christianity and then later the truth of Catholicism. So do you think that if you were a uh, Bible-believing Christian, as many evangelicals would say, would, would you feel that their objections would be answered by this book? Uh, I, I, uh, by the book that I've currently written? Yes. Oh, yes, I, I would say so. At least uh, the objections I had and those that I fielded during my conversion experience, I'd say nearly all of them uh, can be found in the current book I've written. And I recalled going through a lot of that when I was actually writing this book and uh, everything I've learned since then to really augment and have good answers. Why did you write the book then? Well, I wrote the book because I saw a year and a half ago, we were coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and I just felt like there wasn't a nice, single-volume defense of Catholicism against Protestant objections that has the most up-to-date research and scholarship available. We haven't had that really Since Carl Keating in, Keady in like years. 1980. Yes, since Carl's book, which was actually helpful for my own conversion and many others, but Carl's book was written, Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, was written back in 1988 or so, and now I, I felt that um, this would be a good update, if we will, and Carl himself has even said so uh, in his uh, endorsement of the book. What, what do you think has changed in those years? Uh, well, I think what has changed is that through the work of people like Carl Keating and Pat Madrid and Scott Hahn, uh, Catholic apologetics is now more widely known. Uh, many evangelicals grapple with these arguments that uh, you just don't have these kind of boorish or unsophisticated arguments from Jack Chick types uh, out there that Protestant apologists have much more sophisticated arguments, answers to Roman Catholic apologetics. And so my book uh, grapples with that and tries to answer the best of what the other side has. When you think about uh, the current place of evangelicalism, uh, it's very interesting. Russ Duthat was 
recently reflecting on this, and, uh, and he was claiming that there's a real problem uh, for younger evangelicals, and he posited that perhaps many uh, young evangelicals will become Christians, and he basically lays this in the center of the, the place of evangelicalism vis-a-vis -vis American culture broadly and politics particularly. Hey, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, one thing I think I've noticed is that young people are very attracted to churches that have a high liturgy and have kind of an ancient transcendent quality. I've met many young people who are interested in Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy uh, because they look at evangelicalism and just see it identified maybe with some political causes and a kind of shallow theology, and they desperately want more. And they see kind of the ancient wisdom in churches like the Catholic Church that have apostolic succession, that have this liturgy. And they are really driven and fascinated by that. And so I think that that, depth, that rich depth we have in our faith is attractive, and we should share that uh, with other people. And this is the big challenge, right? Because when you go to a, a Catholic service or an Orthodox service, you're steeped in ritual, uh, something which is very much a part of the past. The, we, we pray the way Christians have prayed for thousands of years as opposed to the spontaneous way that Christians might want to pray today. So is there a tension for young people and sort of wanting what is perceived to be authentic versus ritualistic? Yeah, I think young people don't want blind or empty ritual, but no matter how you go about it, uh, as, as human beings, we're ritualistic beings. I mean, we, we come up with rituals all the time, anniversaries, birthdays, uh, ways to commemorate events. Uh, we do this on social media. So you can't escape ritualism because as human beings, we need ritual to uh, bring time and space together for ourselves. So as long as it's not empty ritual or meaningless, I think young people, when they see uh, within the church, you know, this, you know, deep, transcendent centuries, millennia old practices and the rich theological and typology that are present in them, uh, that can be very moving for them when they might see in their own evangelicalism there is ritual there, but it's, uh, it has nowhere near the depth that it does in other churches. When you think, Trent, about your own journey, what do you think was the fundamental objection or stumbling block for you to come into the church? Oh, well, I think there were two. Uh, first, while I was not religious at all, it was the idea that science is the primary way we can know truth about the world, and so religion is not really necessary. Uh, but the more I looked into that, the more I saw the evidence for God and for the incarnation uh, are not contradicted by science and that science cannot explain everything we believe. So that was one hurdle. The next hurdle would be if I am Christian, uh, why don't I just follow everything the Bible teaches and why would I do things that I think are non-biblical? Uh, but then the more I looked into that, I saw, well, wait a minute, that attitude itself, uh, sola scriptura, is not found in scripture and can't sustain itself and is illogical. So those are probably the two biggest hurdles I had to jump over, one to be Christian, the other uh, to be Catholic. Your arguments are made towards somebody who's actually serious about thinking about their faith and considering their faith from a Protestant perspective. How do we convince uh, those young people who just have never really taken their faith seriously to recognize that it's important uh, to be a believer? Actually, my very first book I wrote was called Answering Atheism, because that's what I saw as the biggest threat, really, to the health and spiritual well-being of young people today. So I think in two areas. One, we need to show them that 
uh, our beliefs are not antithetical to science, uh, that we believe in critical thinking as well, and that if you use really critical thinking, if you use philosophy, logic, and reason, you come to see that a supremely good, all-powerful, and all-knowing God created the world, that there is this infinite source of being and goodness, and that's something to care about. If you care about existence or goodness or truth, it's infinite in God, care about that. And second, to use historical research, to use cutting-edge uh, historical studies to show that our faith is not once upon a time, but it's rooted in the actual events of Jesus of Nazareth who lived and walked on this earth, and that the only explanation for Christianity taking off as a religion is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, a miracle that actually happened in time and space. space. But you know, the, again, with an atheist, as with a Protestant, you can kind of argue with them because they have an objection. They have a, they've given some thought to this. And so because they've given some thought, they have an objection and you can start to enter into an engagement of a conversation. What about the person who it's irrelevant? And so how do you make the faith relevant to somebody who has up until this point deemed it to be basically irrelevant in their life? Right. And that reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21. He said, where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. And even if someone is, does not care about the faith, they care about something. They'll care about at least thinking that they were meant for more. Uh, they're meant to be something. Uh, you know, they'll look in their lives, their jobs, their pastimes, hobbies, relationships. And if some area that is suffering, they realize, well, I, I'm not who I'm meant to be. And so focusing on that, that created telos, that end, I think can help someone fill in the gaps, say, look, you do care about lots of things. And religion is just not another box you add in that you care about. It helps you see how everything in reality is ordered and makes sense for you to be the person you were made to be, you were created to be. Uh, so I think that approaching it in that angle, and then also like what I did in my book, Why We're Catholic, not necessarily using logical arguments per se, uh, but using aesthetic arguments, uh, arguments from beauty, either uh, the beauty of holiness we see such as in the lives of the saints, or even the beauty we see uh, in religious art, in religious worship, that that too can transmit truth in a, in a deep way because truth, beauty, and goodness, these uh, transcendentals are all interchangeable. Uh, with the last 30 seconds that we have, just uh, think for a moment about uh, the gap between Catholics and Protestants. Is that gap closing? Uh, why or why not? Well, I think it certainly is uh, because modern Protestant scholarship has showed where reformers and other Protestant authors in the past misunderstood Catholic doctrine and theology. So that's why I wrote in my book these explanations and evidences from modern Protestant scholars that help bridge that gap and bring us closer to the truth. The Case for Catholicism, Carl Keating writes, it's hard to imagine how any non-Catholic could read The Case for Catholicism and not feel almost compelled to swim the Tiber. That's how strong and how winsome Horn's arguments are. Thanks very much, uh, Trent, for being with us. Thank you, Monsignor. May the Lord hold you in the palm of his hand. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.